Hey, what's up guys? It's Rachel and Sierra here with the second episode of the Techno Gypsy podcast. Today we spoke with Jacinto Sal. Jacinto is a professor of physical chemistry at Uppsala University and head of the Plasmonic Research Group. Living in Sweden, Jacinto has his master's degree in analytical chemistry and a PhD in physical chemistry. We have split our conversation with Jacinto into two episodes. This episode is all about the technical aspect of solar energy and plasmonics. We get into the details about how sunlight is converted into energy and how plasmonics work. I learned a lot from this episode, and so will you. Enjoy the episode. Uh, before we get into the details of what you do, could you explain to us a little bit more just the basics of solar energy? Okay. Yes, yeah, so um, solar energy is the, let's say, field of research that is trying to capture light and transform it into either electricity, which is what you would normally associate with solar cells or photovoltaics, Mm -hmm. or into a chemical, which could be either a fuel like hydrogen or um, reduction of CO2 into valuable uh, carbon-based fuels, or all the way to very elaborate molecules like you would have in pharmaceuticals. So the field of solar energy is really spanning from light conversion all the way to electricity or even all the way into a chemical product. And what field of solar energy do you specialize in? So I specialize in both (laughs) and covers also the aspect from electricity production. That's the one that I also have a company on all the way to production or or, uh, what we call activation of small molecules to produce fuels like hydrogen all the way to actually making um, new synthetic roots to make uh, molecules that uh, currently we get, for example, from oil. So we can start getting it maybe from a a more bio-sustainable basis. But of course, you then need to to transform them into the right chemical. Like, for example, if you want to buy your paracetamol or whatever pill you get to, to get rid of your headache currently, the precursor that leads to the formation of that molecule comes from oil. So with, with moving away from fossil fuels also moves away fossil fuels potentially as, a, as our kind of source for molecules. So we need to find different ways of making this, those, those molecules. I would say not unique to Sweden. Most people have looked into maybe looking into uh, waste of, of the, of for example, forestry. For example, we, we have a lot of process to produce paper and so on. But there is a, a large chunk of the, of the things that you get from the forestry, like leaning, that currently is pretty much just being burned out because there is no process to process it. But there is a lot of chemicals there that are quite interesting. And if you find a way to basically upgrade them into the valuable chemicals that we use today, then you could replace quite a large fraction of the of the ones that we currently get from from fossil fuels. Yeah, totally. Can you fill in this gap for us? Like when you collect solar energy from the sun, how do we get it from, you know, like, um, you know, energy from the sun into like usable energy that you can use in electricity? So I will explain the conventional way to do it. So maybe the the thing that is so different from the research that we do is that we use a uh, a new type of material that doesn't work under this physics, but I will tell you the most conventional way that all the other materials work. That is also the way that I explain this when I when I teach here at the university. That is, you have basically to have two things. You have to have an, a material that's going to capture this light, and this material normally have an energy 
a gap. So a difference where you have uh, what we call electrons and a place where you can put them. And depending on that energy gap, it will pick up different colors of light. So if you look at the rainbow, you have the, the colors of the rainbow going from indigo all the way to red. Red is so-called the lowest energy part of the rainbow and indigo is the highest energy of the, of the rainbow. So this gap between where the electrons are and where you're gonna put it is gonna be basically overcome by the light that you absorb. So if you have a very big gap, you start absorbing more into the indigo. If you have a very short gap, you start absorbing into the red. Once you do this, basically uh, light is com composed of what we call a photon. That is basically something that is a quasi particle thing that is gonna basically get this electron from where it's originally is and through the energy of that photon, put it into the state that is available. So the, the energy is given by the color of the light and the other premise is that one photon of light can only create what we call one pair of charge. Basically the electron that you move from where it was to where it's now in an empty state and you leave behind what we call a positive charge. So that's why we call it a pair of charge. So, so all the materials independent, if you use molecular dyes, quantum dots, semiconductors, all of them work under this principle so that you have an energy gap. This is the energy that you're gonna capture the light and that you basically one photon of light will create one pair of charge. So the process of creating electricity from, from, from light is basically this process of, N, of electron excitation. And then you basically take the electron and the positive charge, you make a circuit and you basically have a flow of electrons, which would then mean you have an electrical current being flowing through your circuit. So that's the principle of, um, of any material until the one that I'm working on that works. The, the difference between those materials and the one I'm working now is on the physics, how you generate this electron and, and uh, what we call the positive charge. We normally call it the hole because it's basically the absence of that electron in the original place. So the physics behind the, the material that I'm working now, that's called plasmonics, they don't actually create the charge by the direct excitation of light. So by the direct interaction with the light, but actually the light creates a kind of a cloud of electrons to start what we call resonate. They start moving back and forward. It's a little bit what happens when you go to, to a lake and you get the stone, a very calm lake, you throw the stone and you see those ripples. Now those ripples will basically, will continue to go until they fade out. Now imagine if you put this in a, in a, in a box, which the box here means the, the size of our particle. These ripples will hit the size of the box and come back. And it's in this process of coming back that you can you will form these electrons and holes. So that's a very different way from the a kind of a, a step that you have to jump uh, when you have the other materials. Wow, that is definitely an interesting difference. Both are interesting processes, but the um, the process that you're working on and the type of solar energy that you're working with is definitely very interesting. I'm curious, how long has been doing research on this? So plasmonics kind of, um, from a very funny point of view, actually is at a very old material. It's, it's, there is this very famous um, Roman cup from, uh, from an emperor that they, they didn't knew that they were actually making nanomaterials. So because nanoscience has a very young field of science, but they, what they were doing is they were processing glass with gold and silver. Now, every metal, in a sense has a plasmonic um, effect. The reason why if you search 
which are the metals that people are researching, you will always find that is primarily gold, silver, copper, and aluminum. And this is because they're resonance. So the, the light that you need to absorb to start the process is the ones that fall on the visible. And that's the light that we tend to get from our solar. All the other materials follow outside of the light. So we can basically study them by, by producing light artificially that can trigger those, those plasmonic behavior. But from an application point of view, of course, we want to maximize solar spectrum uh, absorption. And so that's why you will see primarily just these four elements being, being studied. Uh, so they, they were basically mixing this, this gold and silver with, with their glass and basically dividing this glass and the process of doing this, they made nanoparticles. And what he was already observed at that time was that the, the overall color of the cup, uh, so this liquorous cup, it's basically green. But when you put light inside, it glows kind of dark red. And of course, the emperor used this as a way to kind of say that he was drinking the blood of, of the enemies and to create fear. Um, but this the, 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 the already shows you basically the, 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 the let's call it the, the basis of the plasmonic. The plasmonic is not really a color. A color is always an energy gap. It's not a pigment, if you think about it. It's, it's a resonance, meaning it's a little bit, that's also then eventually you can get into this when we talk about the company, how, for example, the feathers of, of a, a peacock works, because it's not really a color that is on the feathers. It's the structure of the feathers that interacts with the light and creates that very beautiful plumage. The plumage itself is actually brown, but, but the way that the structure of the plumage is makes an interference with the light and that, that interference creates that kind of radiant blues and greens that most people associate with, with the plumage of, of a people. So plasmonics as, as a kind of understanding of, of light interaction with matter as a different type of light interaction is, I would say, fairly old. But I would say it's about 15 years ago, people start looking to plasmonics as a, a way to capture light and, and basically drive process with it. The, the belief at the time is that you couldn't really take charge from this material. So you, you would have to do the second thing that is once you absorb all this light and you create this resonance and things like this, you don't take the charge, but you let the charge kind of recombine and produce a lot of heat. And on the surface of these materials, you can generate large amounts of heat for a very short period of time, but very large amounts of heat. And there is now a lot of processes that have been uh, developed from desalination of water all the way to cancer therapy to as a way to basically target very localized cancers and you produce that heat that then basically destroys all the cells. What really was the beginning of, of what we call a uh, hot carrier kind of science. So when you actually using the electrons and the holes to drive to make either a solar cell or a photovoltaic or to use the charge to make chemistry, I would say is less than 10 years ago. At the time I had a project uh, uh, running and, and the belief was again, that you couldn't ever take charge. So we proved that you could, you, you actually form a negative charge. That's the first thing. I mean, conceptually people always thought you had to go through that process, but, but we proved that we about, it was the paper was published in 2013. Then we proved that you could form it, you could extract it because the biggest problem of plasmons compared with other technologies is not its light absorption. In fact, they absorb at least 10 times more light than any other material. Some people even say thousands of times more than any other material. The biggest problem is you have a very, very short 
amount of time to extract the charge. So the trick is how you are able to extract this charge before it recombines and produces heat if you're not interested on the heat. Of course, I told you the three or four processes that have been shown to be able to use very efficiently the heat to do, like I said, cancer therapy or even desalination. So what we then show it was not only that they are formed, but we could also extract it. Then it took another five years <laughs> to show that you could actually form also the positive charge and extract the positive charge, and then eventually actually connect it in a circuit to make a solar cell. So there has been evidence for solar cell making with plasmonics and, and also some evidence of reactions maybe on the last six, seven years. Uh, but only recently was through a study that I had with Caltech is that we confirmed that you actually can form those charges, you can extract them and you can start doing uh, solar cells and, and also chemicals, uh, similar to other materials, but using different physics to drive the process. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned how plasmonics that they absorb, I think you said like uh, like a lot of the uh, percentage of the solar, but how is that even possible since I think that like the most efficient solar um, solar cells now that they only convert like 46% of like the available sunlight into energy. So that's that's another another important thing. So when you have a gap, you you're, uh, define basically the energy of the photons that you're going to absorb, meaning if you don't have enough energy. So imagine you have a gap that would allow you only to absorb photons on the green and of course higher energy than the green. Uh, so that means orange, yellows, reds would not be absorbed, meaning you excite, but you don't have enough energy to put it into the thing. So all those photons are discarded. And then you, you're gonna talk about the greens, which are the, the exact energy that you need. And that's the one mm -hmm. that you maximize because you basically just get the exact energy to promote this electron. But then the, you can still excite it within the photons with higher energy. But because it is an excitation and you only excite one electron at a time, all the excess energy is immediately uh, dissipated in heat. That means it's a direct loss. So when you're talking about the solar cell, there is this theoretical limit. Uh, if you assume that you want to absorb the entire uh, visible spectra, so all the way to, to the reds, that you get about uh, the, 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 the energy difference of about one electron volt. So that's kind of close to the energy of a red photon, which means immediately all the energy that goes above that is lost after the excitation of the electron. That's, that's where you lose most of 50% of your efficiency because for every photon you're gonna absorb all the excess energy, it will be immediately lost in heat. And then you also have inherently kind of losses related to the process. So that's why you get to about a, a theoretical efficiency on the process that works with a gap of about 33, 35%. Uh, so this is this so-called Schottky uh, quasi limit. So it's a calculation for you to maximize the solar spectrum and the photons that you get from the sun. You have to sacrifice the, 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 the energy gap and therefore you immediately gonna uh, discard photons that don't have enough energy, which means that ones very deep in the, in the infrared are very difficult to create what we call voltage. So they, they are discarded. And you also lose all the excess energy that those photons that are in the rare and the, in the blues and so on carry excess energy. Now the plasmonic, because there is no gap, uh, every photon is absorbed as it is. So all the energy is put together 
with, with on the same time. Like including only heat after, energy? Yeah, so, so if you say my plasmonic is on the green, all the photons that it absorbs, it basically uses, it, there's no energy loss from a thermal point of view. There's no energy loss in, in heat. Now you would need to have a material to absorb each color. So that's why the plasmonics are very colorful materials. We have every, uh, plasmonic to absorb on the yellow and absorb on the red and absorb on the thing. But where they absorb the entire energy that you absorb is used to maximize uh, performance. There's no inherent loss on heat on the process of light absorption. The other thing is that they capture the, 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 the properties of them is that they can force the light to be kind of bended towards the plasmonic. This is a, this so-called pointing vector. Uh, mm -hmm. No other material can do that. So all the materials you can imagine, they absorb light that impinges perpendicular to them. Uh, the, the plasmonics actually kind of forces the light to bend towards it. So that's why they can absorb a lot more light than any other material considering their size. So, so the, the, the physics behind is still something that we don't know very well. So there's still a lot of things that we don't know. For example, we don't know what is the energy of our electrons and holes that are formed after the process, because again, it's not created directly from the photon absorption. So there's, there's I would say even from a, a fundamental point of view, there's a huge gap in knowledge that we have on these materials. Since they only, I would say, realistically in the last 10 years, they got uh, attention and only now we are able to start also because from a point of view of looking at this process, they require that you do measurements on, on femtosecond timescales, so extremely short timescales. And only some of these uh, instrumentations are becoming available now with enough temporal resolution that we can actually look at, at, at this uh, process in real time and then try to figure out uh, how to better use their, their, their unique properties. Yeah, the, there definitely seems like there can be um, so many more research advan um, advancements in this and so many more possibilities with this. So what do you see, what is your vision of the future for this science? I mean, one, one thing is, is uh, so from, from a point of view of solar cells and, and what we are focusing on is basically at the moment, not really on the classical solar cells for power, like people normally associate. So it's something you would put on the roof, not to say that eventually you might not be able to do this, but there's a big development to be done to get to the levels of efficiencies that, that other technologies are. And most of them, they need 10, 15 years to reach some kind of level of maturity. And again, all of them were always basing on the same physics. So you kind of know at least how the material behaves before you make the, the, the device. Here, the physics are very different and very, we need to basically study them in much more depth before we see things. But what we are, for example, doing is using this property of the plasmonics that absorbs a lot of light. So if you absorb a lot of light, one way that you can think about it is you can put very little amount of material and still generate some power, some, some current and some voltage. And what we are doing this is basically being able to produce solar cells that are completely transparent and completely colorless because the amount of color that is there is not perceptible by our own eyes because they're so faint. Um, and that means then you end up with a technology that is completely transparent and completely colorless which then means you are looking for applications where it's not really the power, but it's really that you, uh, 
as more what we call an energy harvesting solution. So if you think about uh, something that is now quite popular in, in the media is IoT sensors. So something that we're gonna put in a house, which normally either are plugged directly to the wall, which would mean that before you, you enter your, your, your house, somebody had the clever idea of where to put the socket to, for example, monitor CO2 or the temperature, which normally are not positioned on the same place because CO2 cannot be close to where we talk. Otherwise it would always be beeping that you have a lot of CO2 in your house. And the temperature of course has to be measuring the temperature of the room, not for example, of the, of the outside. Um, the other alternative is that you use single use batteries. So then you make your sensor, you put your batteries there, and then of course you can put it anywhere. And what people realize in the last maybe two, three years is that this is gonna put a, a, a big environmental impact into the deployment of IoT because after three, four years, people are now having to replace the batteries. And of course, most of them are, are, uh, contain toxic elements and also are this single use. So uh, I think one, one way to put it is, is a lot of people in the industry even didn't necessarily thought this was a problem on, on the beginning because you always think about these very small batteries and and, and uh, about two years ago, I was in a, in a talk and some, some uh, professor said this, I think it encapsulates a little bit what, you, what IoT is. So you have a, a tree and you have, you have your roots is basically your servers, your clouds, your, your platform and so on. And then your branches is maybe where you integrate and, and, and connect. But the sensors is really the leaves. It's the little leaves that you have in the tree. Uh, and you have a lot of them, a lot more than, of course, branches and, 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 and roots. Um, and he said, one way that you can think is even if it's not very popular to power the, 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 the service, you could build a nuclear plant near the service because you're not gonna have too many uh, servers all over the world. You will have 10, 15, that's 15 nuclear plants, but you cannot build a nuclear plant near each leaf. So you need to basically have power at the leaf. And then the other thing is how big is that as a problem as for power? And he said, anything that you're gonna multiply by, by a trillion is gonna be a big number. And that's basically the number of sensors that we expect to, to, to have to deploy to actually take full advantage of, of IoT to basically improve our, our kind of performance and quality and, and all kinds of things that, that are being promised. So over the last, three, four years, you have actually saw a small decline in terms of on the exponential growth of, of IoT deployment exactly because of the battery. So you will need a solution that is at least recharging the battery continuously. So light is one of the most available ways of, of um, available energies that we have. Our, when we call solar cell, we also work with indoor light. So it produces less, of course, than the, than the solar light, but, but it still produces. And then the question is, why do you need transparency? Well, I would say if you can do it with a silicon cell, so a black cell, you will do it. The, the question is most of these IoT sensors will actually be quite close uh, to, to the user, meaning quite close to you. And most people will not want a black strip of, of, of cell. So we, for example, are able to make picture frames with our IoTs that you don't even know that IoT's uh, sensor is there. And this is ubiquitous. I mean, I would say almost any room has a picture frame that you can, uh, you can uh, show. So that's, that's one thing. The other thing is applications that you have to see through. So any kind of display application. So being here to your smartwatch or being, for example, in even this kind of 
e-paper displays that you have on the supermarket showing the price, they have all the same problem. They have a battery there, the battery runs out. So it means any function that you want to add for, for example, adjusting the prices automatically, immediately will drain that battery very quickly. So if you want to make sure that the device survives long enough or survives at least the lifetime of them, you need to have something there that is harvesting the solution. And it becomes quite understandable that you have to have a transparent technology because you would prefer to mount it in the front of those, of those applications. Um, going forward, of course, if you keep increasing the power, maybe you can go to a lot more demanding devices like your iPhones and, or sorry, your, your smartphones and, and, and laptops and so on. Maybe there it will be always a challenge because transparency comes at the compromise of how much light you can capture. And maybe you get to a situation that you're, because you want to be so transparent that you're never gonna be able to produce enough power because especially laptops and, and, and mobiles are quite hungry when it comes to power. That's why we need to power them after three or four hours of uses and they use very large batteries. Um, but you can think of other things that are even more exotic that, that use the uniqueness of plasmonics. For example, people are thinking it as a way to improve uh, radio frequency communication because you need something to read uh, radio waves. And you can think of a solar cell that only picks a specific color uh, as wow. basically the thing that is measuring the radio waves. So you could have, for example, your light at home that is actually blinking, let's say, on the yellow color but you don't perceive it because it's still white, but you have something that is basically measuring uh, the, the signal that is coming across. And light, because it transmits for much longer than most of the other frequencies, you will be able to increase significantly the transmission. But there is even applications that we don't even necessarily know where it can go because it's, it's again, from the physics, we are not any more limited like the other technology. We're not limited to the gap. We're not limited to single um, photon uh, uh, to a photon producing only a pair of charge. We know a photon will actually generate quite a lot of charge. You still conserve the energy, so there's no magic here. You still have to obey to the physical principles, but you, you can actually play with the material to produce, for example, one particle, one electron that carries the, the energy, for example, of three or four photons, which you cannot do with other technology. Or you can say, I want one photon to be divided in several electrons because I don't need such a high energy, but I need more electrons, for example. So, so there is a lot of things since we don't know, but we know that we can actually manipulate the materials to do that potentially gonna emerge from, from plasmonics that are not necessarily our idea of a solar cell or a photovoltaic. And on the chemistry point of view, of course, it's, there is process that are very demanding from the amount of charge that you need, and there is process that are very demanding by the energy of the charge that you need. And the way that I explain this to my students is, imagine if you can have a material that you just manipulate and can do whatever you want, instead of having to find the material to do the reaction that you're actually interested in, because that's a lot more laborious. If you say, I have this great material, but if I change a little bit the reaction, I have to find a new material. To do that, imagine if you could just manipulate something on on the on the base material and allow you to do whatever reaction you wanted. Yeah, like why start from scratch when you can just build off something that's already there, right? Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting.